Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. Hope that uh, your mornings have not been quite as eventful as mine has, or uh, as some of yours has because of me, but we're glad to, glad to be here now, glad to, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's, that's good. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3 today. If you don't know where that is, if you look at the very back of your Bible, the, the very last book of the New Testament is Revelation. And if you start flipping backwards from there, the book right before Revelation is Jude. And then right before that is 3 John. Right before that is 2 John. And right before that is 1 John. Okay, it's a small, small book. It's kind of confusing because it's written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. And so sometimes when we hear 1 John or think of 1 John, we, we might think we're thinking about the Gospel of John. But it's a letter that he's writing to uh, some churches. We've been preaching through that uh, now for several weeks, and we're going to continue with that today, uh, looking at the end of chapter 3. Uh, I don't know if you all remember, you may be familiar with it. Uh, back some time ago, uh, maybe 2001 or two, something like that, uh, back when I was in college, there was a movie that came out called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And some of y'all maybe saw that movie, some of y'all maybe remember that movie, uh, some of you maybe not, and, and that's okay, but the, the main character in this movie, uh, his name is Ulysses Everett McGill. He's played by George Clooney. And he's a man who, uh, the movie's set like in the 1930s, I believe, and he's been sentenced to, to a hard labor camp in Mississippi, and he's broken out. He's kind of uh, conned his way out of the chain gang, and he's got a couple of uh, friends with him that he's broken out with him. Uh, because they were connected to him by the chain, uh, Pete and Delmar. And the whole movie's about them, uh, a couple of things. It's about them searching for supposed buried treasure that they found out about. And it's also about the main character, Everett, he goes by, George Clooney's character, uh, trying to get reunited with his family, his wife and his, and his girls. Okay? And it's a movie that uh, is kind of an, ad- an adaptation of, uh, of the Odyssey from many, many, many years ago, the, the epic play. But there's a scene that I was thinking about uh, as I was thinking about these verses in 3 John. There's a scene in the movie where, uh, where they're driving in a car and uh, they've stolen this car or scammed somebody out of this car and, uh, and George Clooney's character is driving the car and then the, the two other guys, Pete and Delmar, are with him. And they're driving down the road and they're talking uh, and Pete and Delmar have just recently been baptized, Okay. And so they're driving, and they're having this discussion about baptism. And, uh, and Everett, George Clooney's character, doesn't really see any value in religion, doesn't see any value in, uh, in baptism. And, and so they're having this conversation, and they come to this crossroads. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there but just these two gravel roads that cross. And they come to this crossroads, and there's a, a man standing there with a guitar case, right? And so one of them, I'm not sure, I think it was Delmar maybe, one of them speaks up and says, uh, how about we stop and pick this, pick this young man up? And so they do. They pick this guy up, and they're, and they're talking to him, and he tells them that his name is Tommy Johnson. And they start having this conversation with him, and Delmar says, uh, he says, say, fella, I don't see any houses around here. There's nothing here but just these roads. Uh, what are you doing way out here by yourself like this? And Tommy says, well, last night I had to be here at midnight to meet the devil because I sold my soul to the devil. And Pete and Delmar are, are, are upset. They're like, what are you talking about? Are you, what are you, are you crazy? What? And he says, no, I mean, I wasn't using it, so I just sold it to him. 
And they're like, what? How foolish could that be? What did you, what did you get for it? And he said the devil promised him uh, in exchange that, that he would make him a great guitar player and a great, great musician. And they're having this conversation, and, and Everett, George Clooney's character, is driving the whole time. Remember, he's the one that says, there's, we're having the whole conversation about religion and baptism to begin with. And so they're, they're having this conversation, and, and, and Everett speaks up, and he says, he says, well, ain't it a small world, spiritually speaking? Pete and Delmar, this is when the, the man says he sold his soul to the devil. He says, ain't it a small world, spiritually speaking? Pete and Delmar had just been baptized and saved. And then he says, I'm, I guess I'm the only one left unaffiliated, right? Because they've been baptized, they've been saved. This other man's just sold his soul to the devil. And so Everett's the only one that's unaffiliated, the only one that's left kind of in a, in a neutral position, right? Well, we're going to see in this passage in, in the second part of, of, of 1 John 3 that John doesn't leave that option open to us. There is no neutral ground. There is no middle ground. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking to some of his disciples and he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever's not with me is against me. And then in Mark chapter nine, he's talking to some of his disciples and they're kind of upset because these other people that are not part of the, of the disciple group are, are, are teaching about Jesus and doing these things and they come to Jesus and say, you should stop them because they're not part of us, Right? And, and in that passage, Jesus says, whoever's not against us is for us. So he says both things, kind of opposites, right? Or maybe it's saying the same thing in opposite ways. If you're not against me, then you're for me. If you're not for me, then you're against me. And if you put those two passages together, and in other parts of the Bible as well, what, what Jesus is saying is there, there is no middle ground. It's either one way or, or another, right? You're either for him or you're against him. You're either with him or you're against him. There's no middle ground, only two options. And, and as we see with, with this character Everett in the, in the movie, even not to choose is to choose, right? Even not to choose is to choose. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground. No one is left unaffiliated. The only question is, who are you affiliated with? Or as we're going to see maybe in, in 1 John 3 this morning, we're going to see maybe another way to put it or another way to think about it is, who are you in fellowship with? Or who are you abiding in? Who and what are you abiding in? Well, let's look at 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 and go through the end of the chapter. John says, For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he kill him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 
we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for your word. And God, I pray that in the next 45 minutes or so, as we're examining your word and considering your word, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be here working among us as you promised that he would be. God, I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. Father, open our, our eyes to see. God, open our hearts to believe. And God, I pray that as we leave here this morning that we'll be thinking maybe a little bit differently about you and what you've done. And God, we'll be more committed to living out what you've done in us and through us. And God, we pray that you will bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to look at this passage this morning, and I, I've got three points for you that may not be a surprise. I've got three points for you this morning. Uh, and then the last point, we're going to look at a, at a few things. But first of all, number one, who are you in fellowship with? Three questions. Who are you in fellowship with? Number two, how do you know? And then number three, why does it matter? Who are you in fellowship with? How do you know? And why does it matter? John doesn't start this section off explicitly talking about fellowship or, or affiliation, if you will. He talks about love. And he's looking back to what's just come before. So if you look back at the early part of chapter three uh, that, that Pastor Jake preached about last week, in verses one and two, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we will be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because he will, we will see him just as he is. And then down in verse 10, right before our passage this morning starts, he says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And then verse 11 that we started with starts off, for this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so we, he starts off talking about love, and, and he says that there's, there's two different types of people in the world, right? You may hear people talk about this sometimes. There's two kinds of people in the world and they may go off onto all kinds of things, right? I say there's two kinds of people in the world. There's ham sandwich people and turkey sandwich people. And you're one or the other, right? You can't be both. You're one, either, either you prefer ham or you prefer turkey. And, there, and there's all kinds of sayings we could come up with like that. And John says there's two kinds of people in the world, children of God and children of the devil. And that may be a pretty drastic thing to say, pretty pretty harsh thing to say, right? Uh, most of us probably wouldn't look someone in the eye and tell them you're of the devil, right? But, that, but because we have connotations of like, 
you're satanic and you worship the devil, those kind of things. But that's not exactly what John's getting at. Although John does that in John chapter 8 that Garth read, he does say that explicitly, directly like that to, the, to some of the leaders there. But, but the devil, remember, is a deceiver. And he often deceives people into thinking they're doing one thing when really they're doing something else. He often deceives us into thinking that we're following the good way, the moral way, the right way, when really we're not. And I think that's kind of what, what John has in mind here. From the very beginning, there's been these two groups of people. And from the very beginning, love has been the characteristic that set God's children apart from the children of the devil. That's what he says. But he puts kind of a twist on this here, on this commandment. He's not so much saying that, that loving your brothers here in this passage, now he says it in other parts in 1 John, but in this passage, he's not so much saying that loving your brothers is a commandment that we ought to obey. Okay, it is a commandment we ought to obey, but that's not the point he's making necessarily in this passage. He's saying that it's, it's a natural lifestyle of those who have been reborn into children of God. Those who are one in the, in the spirit. When I was growing up at, at my church, we used to sing this song sometimes called One in the Spirit. We are one in the spirit. I don't know if you are familiar with that song, right? Uh, I'm not going to try to sing it. I, I kept thinking all week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing it in front of everybody, going to sing it in front of everybody, but I get kind of embarrassed, so I'm not going to. But so I, I kind of tried to pump myself up, but here in the moment, I'm not going to do it. But, 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 here's, but, uh, but here's what the lyrics say. It says, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We're one in the Spirit, we're one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And then the chorus says, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. The second verse says, we'll work with each other, we'll work side by side, and we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. The third verse says, we'll walk with each other, we'll walk hand in hand, and together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. But the chorus keeps repeating, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. And Jesus makes that point in the Gospel of John. He says that the world will know that we are Christians by our love. This is the, this is the main point here, I think, that John is making. But he goes to this example of Cain and Abel, right? If you don't know who Cain and Abel are, we're going to talk about them. You can, you can turn or you can listen, but... Their story is found in Genesis chapter 4, which is the very beginning part of the Bible. You're probably familiar, even if you don't know anything else about the Bible, you probably know who Adam and Eve are, right? The first people that God created. Well, Cain and Abel were their two sons. They were brothers, okay? So listen to what happens in the story of Cain and Abel, the history of Cain and Abel, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, Genesis. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth and had his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field 
that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. This is the first murder in the Bible, the first murder in the history of the world. These two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain was a, was a farmer and Abel was a herdsman. And Cain killed Abel. They brought sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. And then one day out in the field when they were working, Cain killed his brother Abel. And why? Reading that story, obviously it's because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't, right? And, but then we have to ask why. And some people think, well, maybe it's because Cain or because Abel sacrificed a, a lamb, an animal, and Cain sacrificed a, uh, something from the ground that he had grown. Uh, maybe so, but, but it doesn't tell us that. One thing we do read later in the Bible in the, in the book of Hebrews, again, you can just listen, but Hebrews chapter 11, talking about this same situation, says, says this in verse four. It says, by faith... Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. And God, testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. John says here in 1 John 3, he says that it was because Cain was of the evil one, right? He says it was because he was of the evil one. John says that Cain's behavior is an outworking of his nature. He kills Abel because of who he is. And his actions reveal who he was all along. In verse 12, it says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Those who are unrighteous, those who are against God, those who are sons of the devil, hate righteousness and hate those who are righteous. There's resentment, there's jealousy, there's envy. You've heard the phrase, misery loves company, right? There's a sense where the righteous kind of point that out to the unrighteous just by being there. Think about Noah. In Noah's uh, story, when God came to Noah and said he was going to flood the earth because of sin, he was going to punish sin by flooding it, Noah found righteousness before the Lord. And so he began to, uh, to build an ark as, as the Lord had commanded him. He warned all those around him that judgment was coming, but they rejected him and mocked him and scorned him, right? Listen to Hebrews eleven seven 7, talking about Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Abraham, or sorry, Noah, just through his obedience to God by building the ark, it says, through his faith in God, through his trust in God, through his obedience to God, he condemned the world. Now, he wasn't going out condemning the world by, by his speech, right? He, wasn't, he, wasn't, uh, he, was, he was warning them and calling them to repent and calling them to come back to the Lord. But it says, by his righteousness, by his righteous deeds, he condemned the world. When I was at, uh, in seminary, I used to work at this store called Details. It's out in the East End, Middletown. It was a great place to work. The nicest people in the world owned it. Um, and it was, it was a furniture store, really high-end furniture store. And so they would have like really expensive furniture and artwork and all kinds of things. And I worked there in their warehouse and did deliveries for them and hung, hung paintings in people's houses and all kinds of things like that. And, uh, but it was just this couple that owned it. This husband and wife owned it. 
And they were super nice people, like I said, and, and they were the only owners of the business. And so sometimes our duties kind of got, got a little bit confused. Are we working for the store or are we, are we just working for these people? Because, they, like I said, they were so nice. Often the owner would have us over to her house for lunch during the day. She'd call us up and say, hey, I just made some chicken salad. Won't you come over and have lunch with me or something like that? But oftentimes they would also have us do work around their house. And I like that. I like doing yard work. I, I really do. I grew up uh, on, on a farm or around farms. And I'm used to hard work and being dirty and sweaty and all that kind of stuff. And I don't get to do that much now. But yard work is one way that I do get to do that, cutting grass. And sometimes they would ask us to cut their grass for them. And that's fine. We do that. They're paying us to do whatever they tell us to do. So they tell us to cut their grass. We cut their grass. And I don't mind that. And I kind of like the, the hard work of it, right? The physical labor of it. But sometimes it was a really bad situation we'd get into where they'd ask us to cut their grass in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we'd have a delivery to somebody's house. And it would be the fanciest, nicest house you've ever seen. And it would be, we're delivering this silk sofa that's $4,000. And if we get one drop of sweat on it, it's ruined. And, and, it, and, and, and that contrast really pointed out the, how dirty we were and how, how, we didn't, we, we didn't, uh, how we didn't fit in in the place where we were going, how we weren't really supposed to be there, right? And, and the same way is true with, with righteousness. The Bible says that Noah condemned the world through his righteousness. Not that he was preaching, not that he was uh, condemning in that way, but just the fact that he was following the Lord pricked the consciences of those who weren't and stood out and pointed out to those who weren't. The world is characterized by hatred toward believers. And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus told us that it would be that way. Those who live in unrighteousness are convicted by those who live in righteousness. And really what happens is the two natures become apparent. You can't hide in that neutral zone anymore. You can't hide in the, in the middle ground anymore. It becomes clear that there's only one of two ways. And it becomes clear which way we're following. John's highlighting here the distinction between those that are children of God and those that are children of the devil those who are marked by love compared to those who are marked by hatred, those who are marked by life compared with those who are marked by death. I want, to take, I want you to take a minute here and just kind of examine yourself for a second. Who are you affiliated with? Who are you affiliated with? Are you a child of the Lord or are you a child of the devil? And remember, there's no middle ground, right? It's one or the other. Either we're for him or we're against him. Either we're with him or we're not with him. But let me, let me remind you of this as you're, as you're thinking about that question. Talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap. The whole point John's been making here so far is the way that, uh, well, he's going to make in a minute, is the way that we know is, 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 uh, is by are we loving. He's going to make that point here just in a second. But, but talk is cheap. And so think about your own life. Think about it for real. Are you following the Lord? Or are you not following the Lord? Are you saying that you're following the Lord, but your life doesn't show that you're following the Lord? Again, talk is cheap. So how do we know? How do we know? It's easy to say that we're following the Lord. It's easy to say that we're a child of God. It's easy to say that we've been, uh, that we've been born anew through him. But how do we know? Well, the chorus of that song that I, that I quoted earlier says, they will know that we are Christians by our love, right? They'll know that we are Christians by our love. Here, 
John kind of tells us that we'll know we are Christians by our love. In verse 14, he says that. How do we know? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who, do, who does not love abides in death. He tells us that we will know we are Christians by our love. It's at least one of the ways that we'll know. There may be other ways, but this is the way that John highlights here. And he really does want us to know, right? In, in chapter 5, of 1 John, verse 13, he says, these things I have written to you, right? These things including chapter 3. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the, of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing this book to us so that we will know. He wants us to know, and he says that we can know by our love. We can know that we've passed out of death into life. Genuine love is the evidence of new life in Christ, not the cause of it. It's the evidence of new life in Christ, not the cause of it. Remember, there's only two sides, only two islands. We're in death until we come to faith in Christ. In John chapter 1, when John's explaining to us about Jesus taking on humanity, becoming a person, he says, those who received Jesus and trust in him have been given the right to become children of God. How do we know? Are we loving the brothers? He says here, he makes this, this distinction between abiding in him, abiding in Christ, and abiding in, in death. Some of your translations may say remain in him instead of abide in him. Abide in him is kind of an older word, but I like the word abide. Uh, but your translations may say remain. And when we, when we first read that, we may think of that as talking about eternal security, right? Uh, can we lose our salvation? Can we stop, once God saves us, can we stop being, being saved? But I don't think that's what he's talking about here at all. When he talks about abiding in him and abiding in death, remaining in him, I think he's talking about the type of life that we have with God, fellowship with God. Similar to what Paul means when Paul talks about walking by the Spirit. Abiding in Christ, abiding in God is similar to what Paul means when he talks about walking in Spirit. He says that we know that we have fellowship with the Father. We know that we have fellowship with God that we're walking by the Spirit, that we're staying connected to the vine. Think about John 15, right? The, the vine and the branches, that we're staying connected to the vine. We know those things if we love the brothers. But what is love? What does love look like? What does he mean when he talks about loving the brothers? It's not a sentimental love. It's not a feeling. It's not, a, it's not an, uh, an, an emotion. It's an It's an action. I think of the old DC talk song. Some of y'all may remember the old DC talk song, Love is a Verb, right? Love is something you do. Love is an, love is an action. That's what John is, how John's using the word here, right? And he puts Jesus forward as our example. He says, we should love the brothers. If you want to know what love looks like or what love is, look at Jesus. How did Jesus love? Well, it says he laid down his life for his people, and John says that we should follow that example. We should lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay? There's a key distinction, of course. Jesus laid down his life to save us from our sins. And, and we don't love people that way, obviously. Of, of, of course we don't. But we still are called to lay our lives down for the brothers. We lay our lives down for one another by helping one another and providing for one another. If someone's in need and it's in your power, helping instead of closing your heart against him. 
I think of the, the story in, in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan. Y'all are familiar with the Good Samaritan? This man uh, is, is traveling down a, down a highway, down a road, and he gets ambushed and is left there to die. And several people come by, and uh, the religious leaders all pass over to the other side of the road so they don't have to, to be by him. And then this, this one guy comes by, and he stops and helps. Binds up his wounds, takes him to a, uh, to a place where he can recover, offers to pay, offers to come back and pay whatever else it costs later. And, and the point of that story is Jesus is illustrating who your neighbor is, right? That's the question there. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells that story. But I think that story also illustrates what, what love looks like, at least one way that love can look. This isn't someone who stopped and said, oh, I hope you get to feeling better and moved on, right? This is someone who, who involves himself in the situation of the person that was hurting. Sometimes we think of, of love as being like big heroic acts, but it doesn't have to be. It can be, it can be small things. But love, this kind of love, the love John's talking about is, is, is a risky love. It involves putting other people's needs above our own comforts and our own interests, sometimes even above our own needs. It can be costly. It can be financially costly. In the Good Samaritan story, the man left money there to, to pay and then promised to come back and pay whatever else was, was accumulated on the bill. It can be financially costly, but it can also be costly in other ways also. Loving people can be really, really costly. It can cost us time. It can cost our reputation. Even thinking back to the Good Samaritan story, part of the, one of the main points of the story is that this man was a Samaritan, right? And the Samaritans were the people that were hated by the Jewish people. And then he's the very one who ends up being the example of, of what love is and what a, what a neighbor is. It can cost us our reputation. It can cost us our comfort. Loving people can cost us our comfort. It can cost us, it can cost us our, uh, I don't even know how to say it, but our like, emotional well-being. Love, love can be costly in that sense. It, we can get hurt by loving people. We can get hurt by loving people. John R. W. Stott says this. He says, love is positive. It seeks the other person's good and it leads to activity for him, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And, and John makes that point here. Look at, look at chapter three. Look at verses, um, look at the contrast here between verses um, uh, verse 16 and 17. In verse 16, he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, right? And then in verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. The question uh, about what, what is love and how John thinks about love here is, are we for one another or are we against one another? Are we for one another or are we against one another? And it's easy to say that, that we love. It's easy to say that, that we're for one another, right? But I think about this. I think about something C.S. Lewis said one time. He said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting and exasperating and depraved or otherwise unattractive to us. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. It's easy to say that we love people. It's easy to say that, that God's working in us and causing us to, 
to love people and to love our brothers and sisters and to love the church and to love the world. It's easy to say that in general, but then sometimes when it comes right down to it and there's a specific instance, there's a specific opportunity to show that love, to act on that love, it's more difficult. This love in action and deeds flows from a heart and a nature that's been changed. This is John's whole point. How do you know that you're part of God's people? Well, one way that you know that you're part of God's people is because your love, because your actions show the nature. I think about like a, like a family, right? In a family, people look like each other. People act like each other. Uh, people have the same mannerisms. I remember when I was young, all my aunts and uncles, every time a new baby was born, they would always ask the same question. Who do you think he favors? Who do you think he favors? Who do I, and who, does, you know, who, who do they look like? They talk alike, act alike. The children of God act like God. And this is evidence that we are abiding in him. Evidence that we have fellowship with him, that we're connected with him. Again, John, John Stott says this. He said, hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Christ. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. But love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God and issues in self-sacrifice and is evidence of eternal life. We know that we're children of God. We know that we've passed from death to life if we love the brothers. So let me ask, do you know? Do you know? I asked you before, who are you affiliated with, right? Are you, a, are you for him or are you against him? Are you with God or are you against God? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? But now I ask, how do you know? What makes you think that? Is it because you have the right doctrine and the right beliefs and you know the Bible and can understand it really well? Is it because you're, you're serving and being used by God? Is it because you're always at church? Is it because you love the brothers and your life shows a lifestyle that's consistent with the nature of our Lord Jesus? How do you know? And then finally, I wanna ask, why does it, why does it matter? Why does, why does this matter? What do we gain from fellowship with God and what do we gain from knowing that we have fellowship with God? And I wanna quickly suggest three things. First, we have assurance before him. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that we have assurance before him. We can know that we're in fellowship with God and this gives us assurance before him. Not assurance of salvation, that's not what we're talking about here. Not assurance of salvation, but assurance that God is pleased with you and that he loves you like a father loves his child. John's not trying to put a guilt trip on us here when he talks about love. He's not trying to guilt us into, uh, into, into doing something or laying out this, this high standard for us at, at all. And when our heart condemns us, John says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Does your heart condemn you? Does your heart need to be reassured this morning? Does your conscience weigh on you, reminding you of all the ways that you fail to love as God's child? When it does, you can have assurance that God knows all your failures already and he loves you anyway. If you come before God full of guilt and self-condemnation, it's because you're out of fellowship with him, because you're not abiding in him. Openly confess your failures to him. He is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins. The second thing we can have is, is confidence in prayer. We can have assurance before him. We can also have confidence in prayer. Here, John even says that whatever we ask will be given, right? 
And that doesn't mean that we can ask for a brand new car every single week and we'll get it, right? That, that's not what that means. It makes me think of Psalm 37, 4, where, where the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the delights of your heart, the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, how does that work? Is it like a, like a, like a prosperity preacher where if you just have enough faith, then God will answer whatever you ask him? No, it's that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we're having fellowship with God, when we're abiding in him, our desires are changed to match his desires. And so everything we ask, we'll, we'll be asking for things that he wants to give us. Our request will match what he's revealed to us in his word. Our will will match his will. We'll want the same things he wants. We desire the same things for ourselves and for our brothers that he desires for us. And then finally, verses 23 and 24, we have union with God. This is kind of what we've been talking about this whole time. We have union with God. This is the command, and it's, and it's one single command. Notice, one single command that we trust in Jesus and love one another. That's the same thing. Trusting in Jesus and loving one another is the same thing. Continually trusting and loving. Abiding in God and God abiding in us. This is the same union that the Father has with the Son and that we can have with him. We had, our, um, we, we had this program here called the Ministry Apprenticeship Program. And we had our, our meeting for, for June this past Friday, just a couple of days ago. And, and one of the, in our group gave a devotion for us at the very beginning. And I want to read what the devotion said, okay? It was based on the story in, in Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha. Remember them? Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus goes to visit them. And, uh, and one's really super busy and the other one's not busy and they're complaining uh, listen, to, listen to this devotion that, 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 that was shared with us on Friday. I think as believers, sometimes we confuse serving with sitting. We think serving him is spending time with him, or maybe we think God is more pleased with what we do, but Jesus said that one thing was necessary. That one thing was us spending time with him. Mary was sitting at his feet learning from him. We today sit and learn from Jesus as we sit and read his word. God has chosen his word to be the way in which he reveals himself to us. His word transforms, strengthens, and equips us for every good work that he has prepared. So my question for you is, are you choosing the one necessary thing? Are you sitting with Jesus? We can get so busy doing what we think God wants us to do, serving, working, doing, that we miss out on the union that we have with God in Christ. One commentator, John Mitchell, says this. He says, we need to get back to the basic foundational truth. We have confidence not only because our sins have been put away, not only because we can come into his presence as his children, not only because we stand before God in all the beauty and righteousness of Christ, but also because of our union with our Savior. His life has become our life. His desire has become our desire. His will has become our will. His purpose has become our purpose. This is Christianity in action. This is our love for him in action. We're about to sing our final hymn and close our service this morning, but I wanna leave you with just a couple of questions. The first question, are you a child of God or a child of Satan? Remember, there's only two options, and that's putting it pretty drastically, but the word does that sometimes. There's no middle ground. Have you passed from life have you passed from death to life? Have you? There's only one way. There's only life in one name. Are you trusting in Jesus? 
Are you believing in him? Are you relying on his obedience and, his, and, and pleading his righteousness before God? Are you trusting in his death and him laying down his life as the only payment that will cover the debt that you owe? Are you trusting in him as the only remedy to cleanse you from your soul's corruption and deceit and rebellion? Are you a child of God? Have you been brought from death to life? And then the second question, if you answered yes to that question, the second question, do you have fellowship with God? Do you have confidence before him? Do you have assurance that God loves you and is pleased with you and accepts you? Do you have confidence in bringing your request to him? Are you open and honest with him about your needs and your desires and your weaknesses and your failures? Are you quick to confess your sins to him and seek forgiveness? Are you trusting in his faithfulness to forgive you? Do you have fellowship with him? If you don't, then go to him. He'll receive you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for, for your word. And God, we thank you that you have saved us and that you've made us your children and covered our sins and taken our debt and cleansed our corruption. And, and yet, God, sometimes we kind of stop, stop there with our thinking about you, that, that you've done that for us, but, but almost like you've done that for us kind of begrudgingly. And yet, God, your word says that you are our father, that we're your children, that you love your children. And so, God, I pray that if there are people here this morning who, who don't know you, that they would come to know you. God, would you open their hearts to believe? God, if there are people here that do know you this morning but are afraid to come to you, that feel the weight of their own guilt and sin even after you've forgiven them, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to those people as well. That they would see you not as a begrudging judge, but as a loving father. And that they would come to you in openness and honesty and confession and, and love. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.